So our main diet of proclaiming God's word in this setting together is usually exposition, meaning the point of the text is the point of the sermon. We've taken a break from our expositional study of the book of Romans. We did Advent and we went through the book of Malachi. And we're now taking this topical series on our church core values. But today, as we trek through the core value, we are committed to missional living. We will resume our expositional tendency and our text will be the entire New Testament. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I had some of y'all scared there for a second, didn't I? Uh, Obviously, I'm kidding. Uh, But when Blake asked me to teach on this core value, I quickly realized that my work cut out for me. You see, when considering our other core values, like making disciples, it's pretty straightforward. You go to the Great Commission and go make disciples. When we consider authentic community, one of our other core values, just go to the early church, see how they did it, right? And then we are ruled by God's word. That's another one. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, being founded on the word of God. So when it comes to, what about missional living? What about missional living? Where's the passage heading with that title? Where can I find that in the concordance? Because when you think of missional living, living on mission, that's really what the whole New Testament is all about. Christ came, he lived the perfect life, he died for us, he, he ransoms his church and then sends out the church on mission. So where do we start? And most importantly, where do we end? How, how do we quantify living on mission? And how are we supposed to be committed to it as a church if we don't know what it is? So to help us hone in our exploration of this core value, let's consider three questions. What is missional living? Why should we do it? And how do we do it? For those who like to take notes during the sermon, this is going to be your kind of message. There's going to be a lot here. Obviously, there's a lot to unpack. So I encourage you, even if you don't take notes, now may be a good time to do that. First question, what is it? And a reason why we may have trouble when we first are initially trying to define this, the reason we may have trouble doing this is We currently associate mission as something that a certain select few go and do and the majority help support them while they do it. We tend to think of missions as something that you have to go do overseas during spring break or summer or for the select individuals that choose to go through the IMB or other missioning organizations. But though we have this dichotomy separating missions from living, the early church didn't seem to have this. For them, it seems to be one and the same. Their life was on mission. Their mission was their life. It was God's mission. So let's explore 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, to help set the stage for defining missional living. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 17. Paul is talking to the church at Corinth about the nature of salvation, which entails the nature of our mission. Starting in verse 17. Therefore, 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on, beh- on behalf of Christ, by, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The church is a new creation made by God's act of reconciling us to himself through Christ. Verse 17 and first part of verse 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. What does reconciliation mean? Well, really, it's a work of God in that he is the one who removes the enmity. He removes the conflict between himself and humanity. And he does this by providing his son Jesus to take punishment for our sins. And then what does he do? He then adopts us as sons and daughters by grace through faith. Then he doesn't stop there either. He sends us out as ambassadors on his mission. He has credited our sins to Christ's account by grace through faith. Christ lived the perfect life that we should have lived but we couldn't live. That is how we are reconciled. So our first little sub point here, the church is saved by God. So we're trying to unpack what does it mean to live on mission. We have to first understand that the church is saved by God. Number two, now the church serves God. Look at the second part of verse 18. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God gives the church. He's talking, Paul is talking about him and Timothy at this point. He gave us reconciliation, but then he says later on, be reconciled. So in part, he's saying, now be reconciled and you get to be part of this ministry. He gives the church the ministry of reconciliation. And ministry is a, it's kind of a churchy term that kind of gets lost in translation a lot of times. What does ministry mean? That word there, diakonia in Greek. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. Cody Fletcher can correct me later. Uh, it means service. That's where, we get our Greek, that's where we get the term deacon from. It's not limited to the specific office of deacon, but it's the foundation of New Testament fellowship as believers serve others in the body who are in need. And this type of ministry, it edifies the entire church. Specific, it's, it, this ministry is a specific work of proclaiming the gospel of reconciliation to Jew and Gentile. So the church is saved by God. The church serves God. We're now ministers and then the church is sent on mission. 
Verses, look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What's an ambassador? Ambassador is a high-ranking diplomatic official used to establish good relations between two political powers, right? They're the ones that are sent out ahead of time to go smooth things over. Well, the world power at this time was Rome. And Rome didn't send out ambassadors. You see, they didn't, they didn't go and establish negotiation. They went and just conquered. They didn't send out people ahead of time to try to smooth things over. They just went and conquered. Now, everyone else, all the other kingdoms around Rome, they had ambassadors. And they sent ambassadors to Rome to try to get on good terms with Rome. This is so interesting because God completely flips the script by adopting his enemies into his service and then sends them out as ambassadors to the nations. So then he, then he tells us in verse 21 to be reconciled. That's his application. So since we are a part of this ministry of reconciliation, what do you do? Be reconciled to God. If you're not here and you're not reconciled to God, be reconciled to God. We cannot be missionally living. We can't be living on God's mission if we're not first reconciled to God. A popular verse that we use around here, we, just, we talk about a lot because we don't want all the ministry to be about the leadership. The church is the ministers. You do the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. He gave the leadership to what? Equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, he's quoted often around here, Baptist preacher in England. He says, oh, brethren, do not leave these things to the minister. Don't leave these things to the minister. Too much of that is done. It's a sort of Protestant Romanism to leave so much to ministers. Think about the Roman Catholic Church. Back then it was the priests doing all the work. They did the atoning work, the the, uh, mediating work. He says, it is the church, the church as a whole, that God will bless in the conversion of souls when it really awakened. It's the church that does the work of ministry. It's not Blake, it's not the elders, it's not us. Y'all are the workers of ministry. So what, after going through this in 2 Corinthians, what can we conclude? What, how can we, how does this help set the stage for missional living? What is missional living? The church is saved by God to serve God by being sent by God on his ministry of reconciliation. The church is saved by God to serve God by being sent by God on his ministry of reconciliation. Jonathan Lehman, he's a popular Nine Marks guy. Wrote a, he's written a lot of books and he's also a pastor. He says, missions is not just a function of the church. And the church is not just the outcome of missions. Rather, both are grounded in a triune God on mission. The Father 
sent the Son. The Father and Son sent the Spirit. And now the Spirit sends the church. The church now has a missional nature. Missions is not just a facet of the church. It is the lifeblood of who we are. So now we've defined what is missional living. Let's consider another question. Why should we do it? There's really four realities as to why we should live on mission. Why should we live on mission? Number one, and this is the sobering one, but we have to feel the weight of this. We have to understand and feel the, grasp the nature of this. Number one is that sin is real. Sin is real. See, the problem is sin, not social causes. Discomfort, thirst, hunger, disease, sickness, and yes, even physical death are as painful as they are. They all pale in comparison to humanity's greatest need, salvation from the wrath of God. David Platt puts it this way. He says, oftentimes we give, we give people water and we, all we're doing is just giving them water to their trip on the way to hell because we don't give them the gospel. We need to give water as a means of giving the gospel. Sin is real. Very plainly, Romans 6, 23a, the wages of sin is death. Do we believe that? See, there's an estimated 3.17 billion people that are unreached. I'm going to start throwing around some big numbers. So try to, I'm going to try to illustrate it for you to help you understand. 3.17 billion people are considered unreached. That's through the Joshua Project. I highly recommend that website. It's, it's trying to map out the uncompleted task. 3.17 billion people are unreached. What does unreached mean? It means that there is so few believers in that people group that there is not an, there's not enough believers to, sh- to spread the gospel, nor is there enough resources to reach that people group. That means unreached. So you go to somebody in that unreached people group, you share the gospel with them, you tell them about Jesus. They're like, you say, hey, I want to tell you about Jesus. They'll be like, who's Jesus? Well, he's a guy that came to the Middle East. Never heard of him. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about when he's talking about unreached. So how much is 3.17 billion if you said one unreached person's name every second, so say you had a list with every unreached person's name, the 3.17 billion, say you had a list and you named them every second, you would finish that list in 100 and a half years. 3.17 billion seconds is one hundred and a half years. And this doesn't this number doesn't include the cultural Christian who lives next door to you and has no understanding of the gospel. And this doesn't include those who are in reached areas but that don't believe. This doesn't this this is just talking about unreached people. Another way to put it is, so there's 120,000 people in Abilene, this kind of general area, right? Well, that means that 3.17 billion is 
26,514 Abilenes that have no access to the gospel. See, this is the weightiest point of, of why we should live on mission, but we have to understand it. But this is the good news because this leads into our second point. Grace is real. Sin is real, but grace is real. Romans 6, 23b, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are saved by grace through faith, adopted into his family and sent out on mission. Reconciliation has been made available to all peoples, not just the Jews. Such, this is in one of the dictionaries that I was looking up when, when talking about reconciliation. Such removal of this enmity between God and the human race should lead us to missionary zeal. To our being Christ's ambassadors. See, we think when considering that grace is real, we need to consider this. We think of foreign missions as people sent by God from the comfort of their home and their world to adopt a new lifestyle and culture. To go share the good news to broken and often dangerous people who will most likely reject you and hate you for your message. That's really what it is, right? But we have to realize that this is no different than what God has done for us. Jesus was sent by God from the comfort of his world to adopt a new lifestyle and culture, to go share the good news to broken, often dangerous people who rejected and hated him for his message. You see, Jesus was the first missionary. Jesus was the first missionary. So why do we go? Why do we live on mission? Because he came. Why do we go? Because he came. Trevin Wax, a popular uh, pastor and writer, says this as maybe a, a reason why we don't go. He says, the root cause of our lack of engagement in God's mission is not a missions problem, but a gospel problem. We demonstrate by our inaction that we no longer marvel at grace. We are unaffected by the beauty of what God has done for us in Christ. Let us live in and realize that yes, sin is real, but grace is real. And it has a name. His name is Jesus. Our third point, it's our, it's our quickest point as to why we should go, is because number three, Jesus has all authority. Plain and simple, Matthew 28, 18, Blake already covered it in discipleship. All authority has been given to Jesus. And what does he say? Go. If you live in Abilene, India, Russia, or Argentina, you are on mission if you are sent by the one who has all authority. You are sent. Let us be faithful followers to our master. Let us do what our master says. When someone says, hey, I think I'm called to missions, I'm like, great, you're a Christian. We are all called to go. So why do we need to live on mission? Live on mission? Because Jesus said so. Last point as to why we should live on mission. 
Because this was God's plan from the beginning. This was God's plan from the beginning. Genesis 12, 3, he's talking to Abraham. He says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the start of this, that this isn't just an Israel thing. This is the reach the nations kind of thing. Psalm 67, one through five. This is all over the Old Testament. These are just a few samplings. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Selah that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Isaiah 56, 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. This is God's plan from the beginning. Isaiah 66, 18. For I know their works and their thoughts and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. Around the throne room of God in Revelation will be people from every tribe, nation, and tongue singing his praises for eternity. And this was his plan A from the beginning. And there is no plan B. Now that we've seen these realities as to why we should go, let's move on to our final question. We know what it is now. We know why we should do it. Third question, final question, how do we do it? Rubber meets the road. How do we do it? Let's consider Paul's admonishment to the church of Corinth again. Go to 1 Corinthians this time. 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. He says, or here we see him encourage young believers to remain in the circumstances in which they were saved. Because the main thing is that they remain in God. They have a new identity. 1 Corinthians 7, starting at verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let, called there, let him remain with God. He's calling believers to not change their circumstances why? Because the gospel supersedes that. He's using this example of a slave. And he says, if a slave is converted in slavery, don't seek to change that because the main thing is that now you are saved. Now live on mission as a slave. He gives a little caveat there that if you're able to gain freedom, do it. If you're able to gain your freedom as a slave, do it. But don't, don't seek to change that because now the main thing is the main thing. You are saved. 
Remain in the state in which you were called, in which you were converted, when you were drawn by God into relationship by his son through the ministry of reconciliation. What is he saying here? Don't let your circumstances, don't let your job or vocation define you. Let the gospel define you. When you come to Christ, he defines you. Your circumstances are now a means to obey him. Your circumstances in which you are saved are now a means to obey him. We hear these following verses quite often, but this is what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all uh, to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So how do we do this? Wherever you are converted, you are defined as a child of God, not by what you do as a vocation or your circumstance. You are defined as a child of God and you are therefore a part of the ministry of reconciliation. To also help us answer this question, how do we do this? Let's survey how the early church did it. Paul was a tent maker. Joseph, the father of Jesus, was a carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter until he was 30. Cornelius was a centurion. Peter was a married fisherman. Zacchaeus was a tax collector and a wee little man. (laughs) Apollos was a skilled orator and debater. Priscilla and Aquila were also tent makers, and they got kicked out of Rome by Claudius Caesar. They hosted a house church in their home. Publius was a governor of Malta, and he was converted by Paul's ministry. Philip the Evangelist had four daughters who possessed the gift of teaching, and he was one of the first deacons of the early church. Carpus, I love this guy. He was entrusted with Paul's writings. He is a huge part of canonization. Paul entrusted a lot of his writings to this, this no-name guy named Carpus. I'm going to name my next kid Carpus. He's a huge part of canonization, of how we have the Bible now. Chloe, she informed Paul of the problems in the, in the Corinth church. She's a big reason why there's 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Dionysius was a member of the Athenian Supreme Court and was converted through Paul's teaching the Greeks. Eunice was the mother of Timothy, passed on her faith to the man. What did he do? He established churches and elders in Ephesus. Eutychus, this poor guy, I won't have any Eutychuses here, so I don't know why I bring it up, but it, it may help. Uh, for anybody who may struggle with this. He fell asleep in church and he fell out a window, but God used Paul to bring him back to life. It's also a warning there, I think, very subtly. (laughs) Junia, who's ever heard of Junia, but she was a woman known by the apostles, by her character, for her character. Lois was the grandmother of Timothy. Luke was a doctor who traveled with Paul and wrote Luke and Acts. Lydia, I love Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman who sold purple dye and helped fund Paul on his missionary journey. She had two houses, one in Philippi and one in Thyatira, and was Paul's first convert in Europe. Phoebe delivered the letter to the Romans and was a huge part of the congregation there. Stephen. Stephen was one of the first deacons to be recruited by the apostles in Acts 8. As a, he was a deacon, and he was the first recorded martyr. 
His death emboldened the Jews to carry out more persecution on the Christians, led by, they were headed up by this guy named Saul. Really Paul, who was converted to Paul. And this, what this did is it caused Christians to disperse, which is a likely cause. It's not set in stone or it's not necessarily explicitly stated, but it's a likely cause as to why, as to, as to how the gospel got to Rome. Because we don't, we don't know how the gospel got to Rome, but we know there's a church there because Paul wrote the book of Romans. Zenos was a Christian lawyer from the island of Crete. Like these were faithful brothers and sisters deeply committed to God's mission. Most of them weren't apostles. They were just the church living on mission. Here's another shameless plug for our church history class on Wednesdays. Please come. It's a great edifying study to know how people throughout history have lived on mission. As we wind this down, I want us to consider the question that we need to be asking if we're not already asking it. Hopefully this conclusion will will help us ask this question. And this question is, how can my life be on mission. And some points of application from John Piper's book, uh, Don't Waste Your Life, so good. And this is specifically to use your job as a means of living on mission. So whether you're a homemaker, whether you're a doctor, physical therapist, which is about half of you out there, (laughs) or a plumber, this is for you. And this is from the chapter titled, Making Much of Christ from 8 to 5. So five vocational applications from John Piper. First one, use your job as a means of fellowship with God. This goes for college students too. This goes for youth and children. Whatever you put your hand to do, do it to the glory of God. But for those who have a job here, maybe your job is a student, maybe you're, I don't know what your job is, but use it as a means of fellowship with God. Are you fellowshipping with God throughout the day? Number two, use your job as a means of enjoying your gifts that he has given you. God has uniquely equipped and given you certain gifts and talents and abilities. Are you enjoying those gifts? Because if you're enjoying those gifts and you're enjoying the one who gave you those gifts, that is glorifying to him. Number three, use your job as a means of manifesting the gospel. Is there an aroma of Christ in your workspace? Is there an aroma of Christ in your workspace. Number four, use your job as a means of earning money to make others glad in God. This means tithing, yes, but consider going above and beyond to support a missionary, one who has given their life to go to the nations. Another way that you can use your, your money to make others glad in God is have people over regularly, bless them with a lot of good food, fellowship together, live life with each other. Use your job as a means of earning money to make others glad in God. Number five, 
And this is probably where your brain automatically went to. It's where my brain went to as soon as I heard, you know, how I use my job. Number five, use your job as a means of sharing the gospel. Yes, this includes Abilene. This also includes Dubai, Moscow, Beijing, Nairobi, Sydney. Maybe you should pray about how you can do your job in a foreign setting as a means by reaching the nations. Maybe you should pray about using your job, your gifts, your talents, your abilities as a way to reach the nations by going and moving over there as, as a whatever you are, whatever your vocation is. Recently, we've sent four families from Southside to the mission field in the past four years. All of them to unreached people groups or unreached areas. And that includes even in the United States, in Utah, the Snyders. Our next ones that we will send out are sitting here in this room. I don't know who you are. But the best way to prepare for being sent out is by living missionally now. What are you doing now to live on mission? Just some practical ideas. This is all from Tim Keller. Uh, Just some practical ideas that you can do right now when you go home today. Even this week, you can practice these. Just practical ways that live in your life. You can live on mission. Take regular walks around your neighborhood to meet others who are out and about at the same time. Do you know your neighbors? I know my neighbors pretty well. They're all cows. But it pushes me to, I've got to meet more people. I need to be more intentional since I'm, my next neighbor is actually my parents too. They live on the same property as us. But it pushes me to share it beyond just that. We need to be uncomfortable and share it with those around us. Another way is just look for ways to play organized sports in the city. Look for ways to get involved with the intramural sports. Get to know people. Get to know unbelievers. One great way right here at Southside is to volunteer alongside House of Faith. If you don't know what that is, talk to Christy Wilson. Where's Christy at? Can you raise your hand real quick? I saw her. Where'd she go? Maybe she's serving. I know I saw her because I was going to do this. So House of Faith is a way to reach the neighborhoods by reaching the children. And they meet on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. It's right after work. You can come. It's right after school for them. You can come and volunteer with them. And you get to share the gospel every week. Another way is just be hospitable to your neighbors. When appropriate, invite them for a movie night. Invite them for a movie night. Fellowship with each other. This was an interesting one from Tim Keller. He said, join a writing club or a book club. Don't create a Christian one. Go to one that's already established. Go and be a part of that so you can meet new people and bring the gospel into that circle. Invite your coworkers to work out with you at the gym. And if they have like, if your coworkers or people you know, maybe your roommate, if they have like a particular weird skill or, you know, some sort of weird talent that you have no, nothing about, have them like go get coffee with them. Ask them about, the, about it genuinely. People love, there's two things that all people love. And it's a great way to ask questions. People love them, talking about themselves and people uh, love good food. So go have dinner with them, have lunch with them and just talk about them, ask them questions about themselves. 
I'll end with this. John Piper famously lays out three categories for foreign missions that everyone in this room falls into. He says there are goers, there are senders, and there are those who are disobedient. Goers, senders, and disobedient. And he's talking about foreign missions when he says that. And that is true that there are goers, senders, and the disobedient when it comes to foreign missions. But to think that this is the only aspect of God's mission is to be disobedient. Maybe, perhaps instead of having those three categories of foreign missions, we should broaden our scope and say, maybe we should rather say there is one category and it is the missional church. It is the church that lives on mission. So brothers and sisters of Southside Baptist, consider this your sending service. Not this one alone, but every time we gather together, we're being, whenever we leave, we are sent on mission. Wherever you are, you are a missionary.